Mysterious Circumstances is an American crime cast production. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Hey everybody, this is Justin. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. Got a really, really good show for you today. It is going to be investigating the death of actor Bob Crane, who is famous for uh, being in the TV show Hogan's Heroes. When that was on, I believe it ran from 1965 to 1971. Uh, His death is actually still considered unsolved. I honestly thought this was always an open and shut case. And for some odd reason, they had found him innocent. And after looking into it, I'm not 100% convinced, in all honesty, that he was actually guilty of this. Because this is a pretty, pretty odd case. As I said earlier, actor Bob Crane, a little bit of background on Bob. He was born on July 13th, 1928, in Waterbury, Connecticut. Bob originally actually was a huge music lover he uh, started out playing drums at about the age 11 and was actually extremely extremely talented in it and that's what he actually wanted to do he wanted to play in big bands now by the time he got to the age where he could actually play in some big bands uh, they were kind of dying out a little bit so he turned his attention to being a radio disc jockey in which he was phenomenal at it the guy had so much charisma he was very quick-witted very awesome guy all around he uh, married his high school sweetheart by the name of Ann in 1949 and just started getting his wheels going in the disc jockey business in about 1950 now by about the early 60s he had moved out to LA to do uh, radio disc jockey and out there Uh, He actually was very famous out there for being the disc jockey. He interviewed a lot of famous people. Like I said, the guy was extremely charismatic and quick-witted and very funny. So he gained steam very, very quickly and eventually ended up getting into acting. His acting career, you know, was here and there. He had some bit parts, but he really hit, really hit steam when uh, Hogan's Heroes started running, which if you're not a... If you don't know what Hogan's Heroes is, it's actually a pretty funny show. It's a comedy based in a uh, German POW camp. At first, a lot of places, a lot of production studios would not go for this idea because this is 15 years after World War II. They're like, there's no way this is going to work, but it actually did work out very, very well. It ran for six seasons. Right about 1970, Bob Crane married Patty Olson, also known as... Sigrid Valdez, or Valdis, however you want to pronounce her last name. She was actually his co-star on Hogan's Heroes. Uh, Bob actually left his wife and three kids of 20 years to marry Patty. You know, that's here nor there. I don't judge judge people by that. You know, it is what it is. But by all accounts, Bob Crane was an extremely 
wonderful father. That was an account from all of his kids. He actually did have a son with Patty Olson as well, and we will refer to her as Patty, even though her uh, show name was uh, Sigrid Valdez. So we'll go ahead and refer to her as Patty. Um, but yeah, he he did have another younger son with with Patty. Um, they were actually married uh, up until the time of his death. At the time of his death, they were actually going through a pretty nasty divorce, from what I understand. You know, sometimes it happens. It is what it is, and it, we're going to talk about a few things in this episode that. Bob Crane had a different side to him. Alright, now this is neither here nor there, but this is like pure fact. Alright, Bob Crane loved women. Alright, he loved photographing them, he loved making amateur movies with them, and if you catch my drift about making amateur movies with them, I mean he made homemade porn like it was nobody's freaking business. This guy had tons and tons and tons of home pictures home movies the setup in his apartment he literally had a little makeshift dark room in his bathroom for enlarging photographs and developing film and if you check out a couple pictures from the crime scene he has probably for the time one of the most extensive video setups you will ever see so this guy had a real, real passion. Now, Patty Olson, when they were married, she actually knew about these affairs. She was okay with it as long as he limited it, limited them to when he was out of town. Um, she pretty much viewed it as, you know, these girls were pretty much no more than toilet paper because he just used them and threw them away, and she was totally okay with that. They had a very open... A relationship Bob did not keep secrets from her she knew what was going on at all times now the only reason this is important uh, not so much to the case but just how Bob Crane was um, he was you know besides all this yeah he made a lot of enemies because this guy was seriously like screwing Pretty much anything with a pair of legs, whether they were married, had boyfriends, it did not matter. And I will say this, keep this in the memory banks for when we start getting into the theory section and the facts section. A lot of these women did not know they were being videotaped when he was having sex with them. There were, from all accounts that I've read, it was about half and half. Half knew they were and they were totally okay with it, the other half... The shit was hidden, and he was recording it anyway. Now just keep that little fact in the background, because that does play a little bit of a factor when we get down to the theory section. Now what we're going to do here is we're going to pick up this case from June 28th. Bob Crane actually died on June 29th. They suspect, judging by rigor mortis... Uh, and temperature of the body, they said that he probably more than likely died somewhere between 3 and 8 a.m. on June 29, 1978, in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the Winfield Apartments, which is now, I believe, the Winfield Place condominiums or whatever. 
This is a maybe a 20-minute drive from Phoenix. I actually used to live in Phoenix for a little bit. Uh, it's a very short drive, right uh, northeast a little bit. So we're going to pick this up on the night of the 28th. Now, there is a huge major player. One of Bob Crane's best friends is a guy named John Henry Carpenter. And do not get John Henry Carpenter confused with the director, John Carpenter. They are two totally different people. Bob and John Henry Carpenter had been friends for right about 10 to 15 years, I believe, and they were actually introduced to each other by a guy named Richard Dawson, who was a co-star on the show Hogan's Heroes, and actually later went on to do uh, the original Family Feud. He introduced them because they all three had the very similar interests, and that is women. John Carpenter, not a very attractive guy, but he was, at the time, a, a big tech guru. I mean, he he was a salesman for Sony, I believe. He was like a rapper salesman for Sony. So he knew all the brand new technology, knew how to hook up all this stuff, all the cameras, TVs, VCRs, all this good stuff. And all this stuff was still fairly new back in 78. So him and Bob actually became very good friends. And one of the reasons they became good friends was because of that. Uh, some of the other reasons they became good friends was because John Carpenter would pick up Bob Crane's leftovers. This was John Carpenter's way of, you know, getting some pieces of ass without ever really trying. He really wasn't that attractive of a guy like i said bob crane's sexual proclivities are more than likely what led to his death him and john carpenter would engage in threesomes on a fairly regular basis and a lot of these movies and a lot of these pictures john carpenter is there uh, now why john carpenter is important is because he was actually the primary suspect he was tried and he was found not guilty uh, by a jury of his peers in the court of law now there's a little bit there's a little bit going back and forth about why he was found not guilty how could this guy be found not guilty and what it comes down to is circumstantial evidence uh, we'll get into a, a little bit of that later but this is where we're going to start with more of a timeline fashion then we're going to get to the crime scene and i'm going to actually walk you through his apartment as he was found and point out little tidbits of evidence that are laying around the apartment just so I can give you a good map of what his place looked like and what was going on on the day that he was found. So on the night of the 28th, they were in Scottsdale. Uh, Bob was doing, he was working at the Windmill Dinner Theater. He was doing a play there. Uh, he was not, he was, he wasn't going to be there for two Two got awful long, but while he was going from city to city, he would rent an apartment, and uh, John Henry Carpenter, who, like I said, they were really, really good friends, would actually uh, plan his business trips around where Bob Crane was going to be so they could engage in all this stuff, and John could help him you know hook up all the audio and video stuff and then in return bob would help him and kind of give him his 
you know, leftovers or what he didn't want. Uh, on the night of the 28th, Bob Crane actually had a show. While at the show, his co-star, Victoria Berry, was a friend of Bob's. They were in the show together. Uh, John Crane was actually there sitting in the audience. During spells of where Victoria was not on stage, she actually knew John too, uh, had met him, and pretty much everybody described him as a really nice guy. They said he was kind of odd, but being odd does not make you a murderer. So she pretty much said, you know, he's a nice guy. We would sit there. Uh, when they get done with the show, uh, they John Carpenter and Bob Crane go to leave together. As they're leaving, Victoria Berry follows them out, and Bob Crane reminds her about an appointment that they have the next day at uh, 2 p.m. Now, stories kind of vary on what the appointment really was. Victoria Berry says that what was going to happen was she was going to go over there. He was going to help her with a little bit of acting lessons. And he was going to videotape while she was, you know, running lines or whatever. And then play it back for her and kind of, you know, dissect it and pinpoint what she could do better and what she needed to work on. Victoria Berry states originally that them two were friends and it was strictly platonic like brother and sister. Well, in later interviews, she's admitted that they had had sex a few times. Whether or not that was videotaped, I am not too sure. But, as like I said, as they are leaving the windmill, the pair get into the car. Bob turns around, tells Victoria Berry, Hey, don't forget our appointment tomorrow at 2 o'clock. She says, okay. So, they go to take off, and their car has a flat tire. Bob Crane's car has a flat tire. He gets out, checks it out. Instead of changing the tire, Bob Crane, in his unpredictability, uh, just drives the, drives the flat tire all the way to the uh, service station. Now, this is good knowledge to have, because at the service station... The attendant working there actually discovers that the valve stem on the tire had been tampered with. He actually saved this tire and reported it to the police. Granted, that might not be the greatest place to, you know, murder somebody or something like that. I don't know how busy the place was when he actually left the parking lot. That right there is a pretty interesting little fact that his tire was purposely flat as he was leaving with John Carpenter and, uh, John Carpenter and uh, himself. So they go to leave. They return to Bob Crane's apartment. And about that time, uh, Crane, and this is, I believe, uh, before midnight, uh, Crane has a loud argument. His wife, Patty, calls. Now, like I said, them these two are in a really really nasty divorce they're in the beginning stages of this and they have a loud argument over the phone because of her phone call crane kind of fell into a little bit of a ugly slump there and he wanted to say screw it man let's go hit the streets john carpenter does confirm that the argument was loud and they definitely had a shouting match and not only john carpenter says this 
but also some neighbors of Bob Crane's also confirmed that they heard the shouting as well and could tell there was definitely an argument over the phone. Uh, phone records actually confirmed that Patty did call him that night at about that time, so that is a definite fact. They go out to a place called Bogart's, which is a little disco in, in Phoenix. Now, the two guys meet up with a pair of sisters named Carol and Christy Newell. Uh, Crane introduced Carpenter as manager, which is what he usually did. Uh, it helped John Carpenter get lucky with the ladies. Um, as it turned out, Crane really wasn't very interested in the sisters. From uh, So from Bogarts, he called up a lady friend of him, his named Carolyn Beret, who was a restaurant hostess. Uh, he had met during his stay there, who had gone out with him a couple times previous. Now, Carolyn Beret, contrary to popular belief, and this is even with the, I've heard a little couple miscommunications with the Scottsdale Police Department, uh, Carolyn Beret is actually the very last person to see Bob Crane alive. And there's a couple little interesting tidbits of information about this woman that stirs up a little bit of controversy and will make your make your brain work a little bit harder crane and a beret join john carpenter for an early morning breakfast at a place called safari coffee shop in scottsdale and uh carol uh noel's sister was out of the picture by now but carol pretty much agreed to come along so, Carol, Bob Crane, and John all drive to Scottsdale in Crane's car. On the way to the restaurant, Carpenter grabbed the keys to his rental car from his hotel room, which was literally a block away from Bob Crane's apartment. You could actually see it uh, from from the hotel. Now, this hotel is called the Sunburst Hotel. Pretty nice little place. He was actually driving a rental car which was a phenomenal-looking white 78 Chrysler Cordova. That's a hell of a car, I tell you what. Definitely looked at a lot of pictures of it. From there, Carpenter and Newell uh, then drove separately in his car to the Safaro, or the Safari, followed shortly by Crane. Uh, Carolyn Beret showed up right after Crane did. Now... In police investigations, you'll hear some things about how John Carpenter and Bob Crane were not getting along that night. Now, this is said because at about that time is when Bob Crane is really going through a self-realization period for what you might, you know, if, if that's a good term for it. And he's actually looking to kind of turn his life around. He was a pretty self-admitted sex addict. He had some serious problems with this going on. I mean, this dude was all over the map. Just thousands of women, okay? So he's wanting to try to turn his life around. And one of those people that, when, when people do this, what they'll do is they'll shed those characters out of their life. Me, personally, I can honestly say I've done it too. I used to run around with, you know not so savory characters and uh 
you know, when I started having kids, things had to change, so I kind of shedded who I was hanging out with to move on from that. Now, that's not totally out of the norm. Now, police reports are going to say that because Bob Crane wanted to not hang out with Carpenter, now, he says there's there's various various quotations by uh, Bob Crane's eldest son, uh, Bob Crane Jr., who will we, we will refer to as Robert because he does come up in the investigation. Robert Crane said that his dad you know, called him and said that he was tired of Carpenter hanging around. He was just a hang around. You know, he was almost to the point of he was obnoxious by now. So he was trying to shed the friendship. He wanted to pretty much end everything. Um, but the thing about it is, is the waitresses who and the bartender who actually waited on them uh, at the club and at the coffee shop said that everybody was extremely friendly and there was nothing really weird to suggest that anybody was in a bad mood or anything like that. Now, about 2 a.m. on the morning of the 29th, the four of them broke up. Uh, Newell walked out with Carpenter uh, as some fans of Crane, you know, chatted him up. He signed a few autographs. Uh, Beret was with, with Bob. So... Beret says Crane shouted ahead to Carpenter, where are you going? She says Carpenter replied, uh, I will see you later or I will see you tomorrow. She can't remember specifically. Carpenter then drove off with Carol Newell. Now, Bob Crane offered Carolyn to come back to his place and she says she declined. And then she drove herself home after making plans to meet him for lunch the next day. Now, Carpenter was really hoping he was going to get laid right about now. Um, so him and Newell go back to uh, his hotel room. Now, in Newell's first interview with police, she said that Carpenter simply dropped her off at home about five minutes from the restaurant. Now, Carpenter recalled it a little bit differently. He says he convinced Newell to come into his hotel room at the Sunburst. Uh, it was at that point in time he put some moves on her, uh, and she didn't go for it, so he stopped and drove her home. Uh, that's more in line with Newell's later statements to police and her, re and her testimony during John Carpenter's preliminary hearing. So that is taken as fact. That was actually what happened. He was there with her. Now, she says, you know, he and tried to he tried to encourage me to stay. He lay down or on top of me while I was on my back and kissed me. And, um, you know, she said she had to go. Now, she and Carpenter both state that he had taken her home at right about 3 a.m. Now this does put him in the in the five hour window to commit this murder of Bob Crane, which like I said, they believe happened between the hours of three and eight AM. Now according to Carpenter, <clears throat> he says he goes home or back to the hotel room uh and calls Crane to see how things had gone over with Carolyn Beret. Crane says he pretty much struck out 
uh, John Carpenter asked what he was doing, and the Bob Crane says that he was editing out the uh, swear words in Saturday Night Fever so his younger son, uh, who was a six-year-old, could actually watch it. Now, Carpenter at this point says that he told Crane he would find his own transportation to the airport later that morning. And then the two exchange pleasantries, and Carpenter says, um, you know, they said goodnight to each other. Why that's important is because originally his flight was supposed to leave at 10 a.m., and uh, Bob Crane is actually in his date book was supposed to take him to the airport. Now, we'll start getting a little bit more into that, into the facts and theories of why he said he would find his own ride, blah, blah, blah. That's, we're just telling the story in line of timeline right now. So, we're going to walk into the murder scene right about now. Now, actually, I'll tell you this a little bit. Uh, Records show that Carpenter actually checked out of the Sunburst at 8.24 that morning. He turned in the uh, 78 Cordoba at the Avis counter at the hotel, and he told the clerk to have the car fixed, quote-unquote, fixed. Now, the clerk at the hotel says he was very pleasant, very nice guy, and she asked what was wrong with the car, and he said it needs service because there's a lot of electrical issues with this car. Now, it would later be stated that the car actually did have electrical problems when Avis took it back to the dealership in Phoenix, and they were driving to have it serviced. It actually broke down on them uh, once, if not twice. So there was problems with the car. Now you're going to see in a lot of documentaries that cops think this is weird because he wanted the car, you know, hurried up and taken away and cleaned, and this was 20 minutes after, you know, the supposed window that he was killed in, that Bob Crane was killed in. But in all actuality, the car did have some problems, and he filled out a form saying there was definitely some electrical problems. And just so you know, fact is, the car did die on the way to the dealership, you know, to get serviced. So there was some problems with the car. But all that aside, what's going to happen now is I'm going to tell you how Bob Crane was discovered, and I'm going to try to walk you through this crime scene. Hopefully my descriptions are okay. We will find out here in a second just how good they are. Now, at about roughly 2 p.m., on June the 29th, Victoria Berry, who was his co-star, who had an appointment with him at 2 p.m., this was roughly 2 p.m., comes to Crane's apartment. She notices that the newspaper is on the front door, uh, has not been picked up. She knocks on the front door, does not get any kind of response and no answer, and she notices that the door was unlocked. Now, there were three keys to this apartment. Bob Crane had one. Victoria Berry had the other one. And the third one, according to Robert Crane uh, Jr., who Bob's oldest son, he says that the third key was actually stolen and they could not find it. 
Now, the police say that John Henry Carpenter had this other key. The other key was never found. Nobody knows really where it went or what the deal with it was. I tried finding out. Um, so at this point in time, I really kind of got to go with Robert Crane's explanation of it, that the third key was actually missing and or stolen. So she opens up the door. Now the door, when she walks in, it is absolutely pitch black dark in there. Yeah, this is the middle of the afternoon in Arizona. And if you've never been there, I can tell you right now, when you are outside in Arizona in the early afternoon and you walk into any type of building, there's a 90% chance if the shades, the drapes ain't open, it's going to be dark as hell. But another reason that it was so dark in there was because Bob Crane had put very, very thick drapes on all the windows and the back patio doors. Now, he did this to more than likely hide his hobbies, you know, from any neighbors or anything like that. So she walks into the apartment. It is pitch black. She calls out for Bob and does not hear an answer. Now... As we're walking through the apartment, immediately to our right, we have a refrigerator and the small kitchen area. Now I'm going to point out some little pieces of evidence that are going to be important later when we get down to uh, brass tacks. In the refrigerator, there is some Coors beer in there. And on the kitchen counter, there is two bottles of liquor, one being scotch and one being gin. Now, why this is important is because Bob Crane very, very rarely drank. And when he did drink, he hated scotch. He would never drink it. Now, John Carpenter, on the the other hand, did not drink at all. Even, Even though these guys would go bar hopping, the reason they went bar hopping was not to drink anything, but to pick up chicks. This was, I mean, still is. You know what I mean? You go somewhere... You know, easy piece of ass. You know, if you're out on the prowl, you're probably more than likely going to find it in a bar type situation. So that's why they frequent in bars a lot. Now, also found in the crime scene there in the kitchen was a pack of cigarettes. Neither John Carpenter nor Bob Crane smoked. So that is a little interesting piece of information right there. Now, Victoria Berry is walking through this pitch black apartment. Her eyes are probably starting to adjust now. Now, as I told you, the door was unlocked. Uh, Later, police would find a bloody print, which they really couldn't figure out whose it was. It was too smeared. There was a bloody print on the deadbolt of this door, which would mean if somebody had came in or had been there, They had unlocked it after the murder and more than likely gone out the front door because the door was unlocked when Victoria Berry got there. So as we're walking down the apartment, there's a nice wall on our left opposite of the kitchen. Then there's a little doorway and there's a guest bedroom right there with a small bathroom. Now the guest bedroom has a big window window looking out to the front parking lot of this apartment complex. Now, Bob Crane's apartment was on the lower level of this apartment complex. 
There were also bloody prints on the drapes. There were, I believe, two uh, nice sizable ones and then I think one really small one. Now this would indicate that the killer more than likely was looking out the front window. And we'll get into the details of that here in a, here in a minute of why he might have been doing that or she, whatever the case may be. So you have the small bloody prints on the front window. Now, I will say this, his the parking in the apartment complex there's there there's apartments on this side there's apartments on this side and these aren't all one level there is i believe a second story above this but it is so thin between parking spots that you literally cannot do a u-turn like most of them are wide open now to where hey you know if i go the wrong way i can just u-turn it and turn around this was not like this if you went all the way down and you we're in the wrong section of the apartments you had to back your ass up or find a parking spot and turn around and and come back and that is going to play a factor a little bit later so we walk past that guest bedroom and on to the right after the kitchen is the main living room now on the living room there are five reels of videotapes these videotapes are are homemade films you know, pretty much got Bob Crane in some pretty compromising situations with various women, also in threesomes with John Carpenter. Uh, on the table in the living room is the apartment key and the car keys, who which belong to Bob. So we walk a little bit further, and we have on the right... Uh, kind of a little bit past the living room is a back patio area. Now, the back patio goes out to a pool area. Now, it's stated, and Victoria, when she got there, she's still looking for Bob. She's not sure. She thinks he might be out in the pool area swimming or something, so she opens up the drapes, uh, looks out in the back patio, and doesn't see him anywhere. It is a proven fact that when Victoria Berry got there, the backsliding patio door was also unlocked. Police, when they got there, they discovered that as well, that the back patio door was unlocked. What makes this very interesting is Bob Crane had been robbed a few times in his more upscale apartments, so he was a freak about keeping everything locked up. Just keep that in the memory banks. That... To, that, to me, personally, was was really weird because not only could somebody escape through the front door, you know, after they're looking through, uh, through the front drapes of the window, there's a very strong possibility that somebody could have gone out the back door, let alone even possibly gone in the back door, uh, in or out, whichever. So we look to the left right about there past the living room, and this is where we have the master bedroom. Now, Victoria walks in, and it's still dark in here, and she sees she sees uh, a body laying in the bed. Now, Bob Crane is a notorious light sleeper. They said this guy would freaking wake up to the drop of a pen. He's very, very light sleeper. 
said she looks in, she sees a body, and, and she doesn't recognize it as Bob Crane right away. She actually at first thinks it's a woman uh, because there is dark all around where the head area is. Now she thinks this is hair. She walks in a little bit closer and discovers that it is not a woman, but it's actually a man, and that it is not hair, that it is a lot and lot of blood all over the pillow area. And, uh, right, kind of splattered up against the wall. Now, she doesn't at first know this is Bob Crane. She actually thinks it's John Carpenter at first. Now, why she thinks this is because Bob and John are best friends and they are known to stay at the same places at the same time because of their friendship slash connection that they have. He is always around. So her first thought is that it's John Carpenter. She walks in. She says... She actually tells the police, she's like, I stood there for a minute because I was numb. I didn't know what I was looking at. There was blood splattered all over the wall. She's like, there was blood everywhere. It was, there's a lot of pictures of this crime scene on the internet, and it is pretty graphic. It is pretty graphic. So she walks in a little bit further and notices a very expensive French watch on the left wrist, of the deceased and then she realizes oh shit this is Bob now Bob Carpenter is, or Bob Carpenter sorry about that Bob Crane is laying on his right side on the right side of the bed which is closest to the door curled up in almost a full fetal position All right, he has blood on the side of his head I mean, he was bludgeoned, okay? It's, there's splattered blood all over the back of the wall where the head headboard would be. There is no headboard there, but where it would be, there's blood spattered all over the wall. So Victoria Berry pretty much freaks out and leaves the scene of the crime coming out of the apartment screaming. Now, neighbors hear this, they come out. And they all call the cops together. So cops show up at right about, I think about, right about 2.30 is when the very first police officer on the scene shows up. Um, I can't remember her name. I'm pretty sure it was Paulette. But uh, she shows up and she does the very, very right thing. And... What she does is grabs Victoria Berry, gets her out of the apartment, puts her in the squad car, and calls it in. Now, the lead investigators on this case are going to be Lieutenant Ron Dean, and shortly after him, uh, Sergeant Dennis uh, Borkenhagen. They show up at right about 3 p.m. Now... They show up, by the time they get there, it's a pretty muddy crime scene. Because what happened was, the other cops that show up on the scene, they let Victoria Berry come back into the apartment. Okay, and she is pacing back and forth, smoking cigarettes. One officer is on the phone. Now, the main officers were both assured that the place had been dusted for prints. 
the thing that bothers me about this is that how in the hell are they going to do it that fast? I don't believe for a second that they dusted for prints before they started trampling all over this crime scene. And another thing that bothers me is there were cigarette butts in ashtrays and in his house, and Bob and John, both of which were not smokers. Now, that is a very interesting fact right there. So while the two lead investigators are there, at roughly about 3.15 p.m., John Henry Carpenter calls Bob Crane's apartment. Now, he left, he checked out of the hotel at 8.24 a.m. He had a flight back to L.A. at uh, 10 a.m. Now, in a couple documentaries I've seen, you got cops that are like, well, he was in a hurry to get out of town. He was two hours early to catch his plane. No, in all actuality, he was not. He, it was roughly a 20-minute to 25-minute drive with no traffic from Scottsdale to the Phoenix airport. Now, if he checked out of his hotel, let's say he filled out his report for the, for the car being messed up, that might take, what, 10, 15 minutes? That puts him at the airport at about 9.15 or so when his flight is leaving at 10 a.m. So he's actually there at about the time that he was supposed to be. Now, if you watch a couple other documentaries, you're also going to see that he had left town because of the murder of Bob Crane. No, he was only in town. He got into town on the 25th, and he was only scheduled to be there for four days. So he was actually, prior to this, scheduled to leave at 10 a.m. on the 29th, no matter what. But let's say it's an hour, roughly an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minute flight back to L.A. From there, he gets off, goes to work. And at about, like I said, 3.15 p.m., he calls uh, Bob Crane's apartment looking for Bob. Like I said, there's a lot of rumors that the friendship was severed at this point in time. But that's, you know, some of that is hearsay. I can't really base fact on that because the two were still extremely close at this point in time. Now at about 3.15 is when John Henry Carpenter calls Bob Crane's apartment looking for him. Lieutenant Ron Dean instructs Victoria Berry to answer the phone. So she answers the phone, she exchanges pleasantries with him, and he knew that she was supposed to be over there at about 2 o'clock or so. And he also was figuring that, hey, if she's going to be there too, obviously they're going to be home, so I'm going to call around 3, 3.15. The cops immediately think this is sketchy as shit. They're like, and, and I quote, this is what they say, it's like a murderer returning to the scene of the crime via phone. Now, Victoria Berry doesn't really say anything about the cops being there until Lieutenant uh, Ron Dean grabs the phone from her and he identifies himself, and there's two conflicting stories here. The cops say that they are there investigating an incident. Well, the cops say that John Henry Carpenter didn't seem alarmed that the cops were there. 
didn't ask where Bob was, and didn't didn't even ask why they were there, period. Well, in John, John Carpenter's testimony, he says that he asked several times, you know, what was there, a robbery? You know, what's going on? Where's Bob? So you got two totally conflicting stories right there. Now, for the record, I do got to give you a little bit more crime scene info here. At this point in time, we do not know what the murder weapon is. We know that it's a blunt object, and Bob Crane was hit in the head twice, uh, right around the left temple area of his head. Now, the blood splatters on the wall indicate a forward forward stroke of this blunt object. But there were no blood spatters on the ceiling, which suggests either a stronger person took shorter uh, strokes while he was hitting him, or it was a shorter person who was taking, uh, you know, heavier strokes with whatever this blunt object was. Now, what they suggest is that if it was a weaker person, the arc of the stroke of this blunt object would be greater, so the blood would splatter higher. That is true, but in all actuality, if that person is shorter, that might not so much be the case, because there was a lot of blood everywhere. So that being said, Victoria Berry's writing down her statement at the at the at the apartment, just smoking cigarettes left and right. They're trampling all over this crime scene, which is just, it's, I mean, you gotta, I'll give the Scottsdale Police Department credit for this thing, for this much. In 1978, in Scottsdale, Arizona, there was absolutely no homicide unit. They had regular cops in there. They, yeah, they had some detectives, and I believe that detectives were actually out of Phoenix. So they did not have, I think on average I read, there was maybe, and I say maybe one homicide a year in the Scottsdale area. So they were very, very new to these kind of investigations, let alone a high-profile celebrity murder. And, you know, they kind of botched it in that way. There were all kinds of, eventually there were all kinds of fingerprints taken from the crime scene, and literally there were all kinds of fingerprints from all kinds of people who are unidentified. So just remember that little fact right there. You know, like I said, John Henry Carpenter called at 315. You know, the cops are there investigating. They tell John that. But they won't tell him why. So around a little bit after 315, John Henry Carpenter actually calls Robert Jr. Now... Everybody knows John Henry Carpenter in this circle of friends and family because he was so close with Bob for so long, and that includes Bob's son, Robert Jr. Now, Robert says that when they talk on the phone, it's only for a couple minutes. He just is just letting Robert know, hey, I'm back in L.A. If you need anything, let me know. But what John Henry Car- Carpenter is saying is that he called, hey, I called your dad's apartment, you know, cops are there, and, you know, I don't know what's going on, they won't tell me what's going on. Now, at this point in time, I am more likely to believe John 
Carpenter's account just because of the simple fact that at 3.30 p.m., Robert Jr. actually calls his dad's apartment and asks to speak to him. Well, Victoria Berry answers the phone again and tells Robert that he's not there. And Robert Jr. says, okay, well, you know, let's just tell him, tell him his son Bobby called, you know, it's nothing important, blah, blah, blah. Hangs up the phone. Well, right after they hang up the phone, John Henry Carpenter calls back again. And he's saying that he's asking why the cops are there again. The cops say that he never once asked any of this type of information. He's basically saying, hey, you know, he's, you know, he's just calling to see what's going on. He's trying to involve himself in the case, even though he's not here. So he, you know, can see what's going on. John Henry Carpenter totally denies that. So the cops start feeling that maybe Carpenter is a suspect. So what they do is they start asking around about him and they find out about him staying over at the hotel about a block away and the rental car that he turned in. So on June 30th, it actually took the cops a little while to get to find the rental car because of the fact that uh, it had been taken in to get serviced. Well, the cops on the 30th actually located the car. Here's where your circumstantial evidence is going to come into play. Inside the car, there is blood smears found on the passenger side door. Not the driver's side, the passenger side of this door. Now, at this time... There is no DNA testing. DNA testing really wasn't found out until 84. Uh, it wasn't started to be used until about 85. And the modern process that we use now actually didn't start until about 1988. This is 1978. So all there was was blood typing. Now as luck would have it, Bob Crane has... B-type blood. B-type blood is one of the rarest bloods you can find, and at this point in time, only about 10% of the population had B-type blood. John Henry Carpenter actually had A-type blood. Uh, the blood actually did not match any other person that was reportedly in the car while it was in the possession of John Carpenter, and that would include the young lady friend that he you know, tried to shack up with that night. So immediately, he is a prime suspect. Now, if you listen to some documentaries or you watch some, they're going to try to make these bloodstains out to be just massive, okay? I saw pictures of these little blood smears, and literally, I didn't see one that was longer than one inch, and maybe a quarter inch wide. So these are small little sm little things on the passenger passenger side of the door. And on top of that, it really it could be from a finger cut, it could be from anything like that. Now there was no other injuries found to Bob Crane when they discovered his body. One thing they did find during the autopsy was there was a 
spot of semen on his inner thigh next to his groin. Now, as as fate would have it, the Birkenhagen, or Borkenhagen, whatever that one cop's name was, yeah, Dennis uh, Borkenhagen, he finds out about this by the metal, by the medical and or he calls the medical examiner and medical examiner says well why what you know what what is that going to prove other than the guy got a piece of ass before he died and the medical examiner refused to get this sample now when we get to the theory section that sample could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that john carpenter would have been the killer and i'll explain that to you why like i said when we get into the theory section but there were no other abrasions found on the body so it's hard to say whether it was a cut you know it's hard to say if it was from a murder weapon we don't know because like i said at this point in time we still do not know what the murder weapon was all we know is that he was it was a blunt object two times side of the head while he was sleeping there was no sign of a struggle and actually a nice little tidbit of information as well was there was a vcr cord actually wrapped around bob crane's neck this was done after he was already dead uh, there are a couple different theories on this, and we will get into that in the theories section. I'm just trying to give you details right now. When when John Carpenter is presumed a main suspect because of the blood type matched that of Bob Crane, and there is actually a little piece of brain tissue found in the car as well or what they believed to be to be brain tissue um that was collected it was put into evidence on july 2nd the cops actually go to la to interview john carpenter john carpenter is probably the most ideal suspect that any cop could literally ever ask for he volunteers anything they want he says, I will take a lie detector. I will help you however you want. He says he'll take some sodium pentothal, which is also known as truth serum. He's like, I'll, you guys can hypnotize me. Anything I can do to help to find out who killed my best friend. Well, for some odd reason, the cops think this is odd. They're like, why is he so willing? He willingly went from L.A. back to Arizona to help with this investigation and to be interviewed now at the time he really doesn't think he doesn't know that he is a suspect the cops on the other hand this is really the only lead that they got they got a couple other little tidbits of information here and there but this is the only lead that they have to go on and they seriously and I'm not saying i think he's innocent i'm not saying i think he's guilty but i do think it's unfair that the cops zeroed in on him they literally had no other suspects to investigate which is fine but they needed to look into other options a little bit more because once they set their sights on john henry carpenter they did not look anywhere else 
they were bound and determined to charge John Henry Carpenter with this murder. Half of that reason was because of the blood samples and the brain tissue that was found in Carpenter's car. Now it's fair to say, like I said, I'm not saying he's innocent, I'm not saying he's guilty, I'm just presenting some facts right now. But I do find it odd that the cops automatically zeroed him in. And he went in for interviews, he went in for questioning, he actually did not take a polygraph because at that point in time the cops did not have enough information to ask him the right questions to determine whether or not he would be lying on a polygraph. Now, polygraphs are pretty much inadmissible in court. They don't hold up for shit because it's basically, you know, a, a little stress test. If you're stressed out and the cops are there, it could be, you know, it could come up inconclusive. You know, it's a lot of variables involved with the polygraph test. Basically, what polygraph for is to scare whatever suspect is questioned and say, hey, we know you're lying, fess up. At the end of the day, a court's going to look at that and be like, the guy was under stress, you know. Or, hey, it's, you know, we can't tell whether he's lying or not. So he does not take a polygraph. He does not get hypnotized. Any of these things that he offered does not happen. Now, it is worth stating that at the end of him getting interviewed, he the cops straight up tell him, we know that you did this, and we will charge you with murder at some point in time. Now remember that statement. They straight up said, we know you did this, we will find out, you know, get enough evidence, and we will charge you with murder. Now why they were saying this was because the county attorney, the prosecutor's office, they were kind of at odds with the police department at this point in time. Now, when you're trying to investigate a murder, you would honestly think that you could put some little petty-ass differences aside. That apparently did not happen. Even in interviews with the cops and the county's attorney, you can see there is definitely some tension there. Basically, the prosecutor said, or the county attorney, says... I'm not going to file charges unless you bring me a confession or a murder weapon with prints. Well, they didn't even know what in the hell the murder weapon was at this point in time. All they knew it was a blunt object. So they had no choice but to release John Carpenter in which he returned to California to the L.A. area. Um, so this case is going to sit dormant. For the next, uh, let's say, 12, 13 years. Now, the case is not actually closed, but it is not actively investigated. So, it is still an open case. But it, for the next 12 years, it will not be openly investigated. Or actively investigated, I should say. So, during this span of time, when nobody's actively investigating it, the cops are still looking into some stuff. And what they find is that they take away, they start looking at motive, alright? They take away the fact that this could not have been a robbery. The only thing missing from this apartment was a photo album full of pictures of 
Bob Crane, John Carpenter, and various women performing sexual acts. That was the only thing missing. I sh- well, I tell you why I shouldn't say the only thing, because there was actually another thing missing that Victoria Berry said she saw on the bed, and Bob Crane used to carry around this little, you know, duffel-sized black bag with him everywhere he went. Now, it's supposed, supposedly, what he kept in there were pictures and uh, various VHS tapes and a Polaroid camera, so he basically had himself a little travel pack. Now, when the cops got there, it it was found when the cops got there, but shortly afterward, it was unaccounted for. They could not find it absolutely anywhere, and this black bag never comes back up again in the investigation. So they're even setting their sights more on John Henry Carpenter right about now. So Carpenter's going on, living his life, doing whatever, and in about 1992, or actually take that back, in about 1990, there is a new county attorney elected into office. Now, this county attorney's main goal is to try to solve this murder. So he, they have a better relationship with police now, and the case is officially investigated again actively. So they start looking at stuff, and they start trying to zero in on what the murder weapon was. They had originally knew it was a blunt object. They didn't know what it was. They they were assuming that it was a tire iron, and there was actually a tripod uh, from one of the cameras missing from the scene. Now, on the bed, there was actually a V-shaped smear of blood where the murderer wiped off the blood from the murder weapon. Now, it kind of, they were assuming that it might have been a tripod, but they did not know. So what they did was they went back and they got all the evidence that they could find and the new investigators on it actually got an old style tripod. And what they found was pretty amazing. They actually set it up right to the uh, blood stains on the sheets and it matched perfect in a, a little V shape. And not only that, but the head of this tripod actually matched the wounds in Bob Crane's head perfectly. So now at this point, we have a murder weapon per se. We still don't actually have the murder weapon though, but we do know what he was killed with. Then Another thing that they notice in the investigation is when he was, uh, after he was dead, the person wrapped a uh, VCR uh, extension cord or, or cable around his neck. The odd part about it that they found was the murderer actually had to walk clear to the front of the apartment to the uh, to the back or to the patio area. And uh, grab the VCR VCR cord, and they cut it off with a sharp knife or a pair of scissors. Now, cops immediately jump on the fact that it was probably cut with a pocket knife, and they lean, start leaning more towards John Henry Carpenter again because not that many women carry pocket knives. 
I'm going to give you a little fact right now, though. I live in Indiana, and I know tons of chicks that carry around pocket knives. Whether they, they're country or whether they got switchblades in their bras, you know what I mean? It is what it is. So I'm not count. I'm still not counting out a woman as a murderer at this point in time. So they finally get enough evidence, and at this point in time, they actually have DNA testing. So they start doing DNA testing on the blood samples that they got from John Henry Carpenter's car, his rental car, and they actually match Bob Crane. So here we have blood actually blood that they know is from Bob Crane in the rental car that John Henry Carpenter had. Now when it comes to this brain tissue, they re, they looking through, you know, all the evidence and literally all they have is a picture of this brain tissue. And the bad thing about it is they do not have the actual tissue sample anymore. During this 12 years, it had apparently been lost. Now, this would have been, as they say, the smoking gun in this case. Because that would place John Henry Carpenter at the scene of the crime. He had the window of opportunity. He had a motive, per se, if, you know, based on hearsay and rumors were true. And that would actually give them enough evidence to more than likely get a murder conviction out of him. So after all this evidence is presented to the new county attorney, on March 11, 1993, a warrant was actually issued for the arrest of John Henry Carpenter. Now, John Henry Carpenter was still in uh, California, so what they did was they issued like a, I think they called a fugitive warrant, and he was picked up and brought back to Phoenix, Arizona, for trial. Now, during, they had about a two-month trial, all right? Now, during the trial, the, the main points of the trial are to place him at the scene of the crime, give substantial motive, and there was absolutely no confession so they had to have some kind of fingerprints or some kind of evidence available now they could pinpoint that the blood in the car was Bob Crane's but that still doesn't say that he murdered him that only says that he was in the car and at maybe some point in time he was bleeding because like I said they were not on the driver's side of the door, which is what you would might assume if a murderer is, uh, you know, getting in a car after a murder. You assume there's probably going to be something on the driver's side of the door. They still have absolutely no murder weapon. And the photo album that was missing was still never found, which they would naturally assume that there is going to be evidence in this photo album now why they would take one photo album out of i think he had like four or five photo albums there is beyond me there were a few videotapes missing but that was about it everything else was still intact there was no money taken nothing else of value taken now bob or bob crane now john henry carpenter goes through a two-month trial and 
the jury finds him innocent because basically if you're going to convict somebody of first degree murder you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the one who did it now i know a lot of you are sitting here listening and you're like well how the hell did he not do it you know and that's when we're going to get into a couple little of the theory section here because there were other people who had motive now I usually do the theory section by least plausible to most plausible I'm not gonna do that because all these theories are pretty good and obviously we're gonna start off with the John Henry Carpenter theory now John Henry Carpenter was a very very good friend of Bob's okay now according to Bob he had told his son Robert that at one point in time John had made a pass at him meaning he wanted to have a possible homosexual encounter with him now this is just purely what Robert Crane says Bob's son it's hard telling whether it's true or not but in all actuality why would somebody say something about that just randomly out of the blue why would you you know why would Bob Crane you know just him and his son were very close him and his older son were very close there were no secrets between them so I'm not seeing a reason why he would make this up now we stick with this sticking with this theory what the cops say is that after he dropped after John dropped his lady friend off he goes back to Bob Crane's apartment murders him and uh, basically I hate hate saying this but because there w might have been uh, a little bit of homosexual you know feelings between John and Bob not so much Bob towards John but more John you know kind of being in love with Bob Crane uh, that after he murdered him he ejaculated on the body now this is where that little bit of semen on Bob Crane's groin would come into play had the medical examiner saved that he could have proved one way or the other whether or not that was John Henry Carpenter's somebody else's or Bob Crane's but like I told you earlier he refused to save that because he didn't think it would actually prove anything other than that Bob Crane got a piece of ass before he died now beyond that there's other little they the cops specifically point out the VCR cord that was cut and wrapped around Bob Crane's neck after he died I I, I can kind of understand that they say what do they say is that it's symbolic for a severed relationship they say John Henry Carpenter was pissed because he viewed their relationship more closely than Bob did uh, he was basically being outed he wouldn't be able to get women anymore uh, and all this stuff and that that was symbolic for their severed relationship me personally when I look at that I can I can see that side of the theory 
but I can also see if a woman had been in there and would have hit him a couple times, I can see them not actually realizing that he was dead or not 100% sure that he was dead and just, you know, tied it in a little bit of a bow around his neck, tightened it up, and that would definitely make sure that Bob Crane was going to die. You know, there's two little little bit sides to that. Another theory about John Carpenter is that when he was actually arrested for the murder in 93, he called his wife and he said, and I quote, they finally got me. They finally got me. You know, told her not to freak out. Actually, the first person that he told her to call wasn't even a lawyer. It was their longtime mutual friend, Richard Dawson. Now, as, as a fun little fact here, Richard Dawson was not a huge fan of Bob Crane's either. Uh, Richard apparently did not really like Bob all that much after they had had an outing or, or you know, some kind of fight over the course of the years and he was not particularly that close with him anymore now it bothers me there's two things that bother me about this one if if you're a murder suspect all right and the first thing you do when you call your wife is say they finally got me you know they're going to charge me with murder that can mean two things cops totally take this as an admission of guilt and i could see how they would feel that way but in all actuality, if you think about it, if the last thing a cop says to you 12 years ago is, I know you committed this murder, and I will charge you with this murder, this guy was probably waiting for the day that those cops are going to try to actually charge him with this murder. Now, you could take that context two different ways. You could take it as an admission of guilt, or you can take it as, well, you know, they finally somehow came up with enough evidence and you know they finally you know got enough shit to where they can charge me with this murder like i said before john henry carpenter was very open and very very just willing to help out this investigation absolutely to the 10th degree he wanted he wanted this he wanted it solved Bob Crane was literally this guy's only friend, let alone his best friend. So you can take that little phrase two different ways. That's pretty much all we have in the John Henry Carpenter theory. Based on the facts and based on those little tidbits of information, that's actually probably the strongest theory that we have here. But we also have to go to... Uh, another theory, and this theory was actually presented, I believe, last year by Robert Crane, who is, like I have mentioned numerous times, Bob Crane's eldest son. And there is absolutely no love lost between Robert Crane and his ex-stepmother, Patty Olson. The, at the time of his death, he actually about... A, I'll, We'll take back even further. About a year before his death, he had changed his will. Bob Crane had changed his will and literally left everything to uh, 
Patty. Now, why he would do this, we're not really sure, but a lot of it is because he did not think he actually had anything. See, it's stated that Bob Crane actually had $100,000 embezzled from him, and with that money lost, he was scraping by to make ends meet doing these dinner theaters. He really was not getting that much work uh, in show business after Hogan's Heroes. He had had like a failed TV show. He had had another kind of failed show uh, from Canada uh, that came out in Canada that they only did like one or two episodes of. So he was traveling around doing these dinner theaters, uh, barely scraping by. Now, at the end of the day, within a year of Bob Crane's death, he would come in to 25% of Hogan's Heroes' profit. Now, Hogan's Heroes was a hugely syndicated show in the 60s, let alone when we got into the 70s. Now, Bob Crane was a smart enough guy... He didn't actually get paid for the first six episodes, but instead he opted for a percentage of the show. Now, in 1990, it was estimated that Hogan's Heroes was worth $90 million. 25% of that would have been Bob Crane's. Now, who would have known this kind of information? Probably Patty Olson, his wife who he was having very 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 nasty divorce with at this point in time now it's also a little bit of a fact there's she was there 10 days beforehand uh for father's day uh she had brought their younger son from their marriage to visit bob and it was an extremely unannounced visit bob was kind of pissed off about this wondering you know what in the hell's going on now the theory is that she was there to actually case the place out and possibly steal the key to the apartment while she was there but this is a, a theory just based on robert crane i it's i mean it is proven fact that she was there 10 days beforehand um, she was actually investigated as a suspect in this case because of their divorce. And like I said, it was an extremely nasty divorce. But there's also a statement by somebody, and I, I had heard this on a documentary, and it is totally unconfirmed that she was actually there the day before his murder trying to reconcile their differences. Whether or not that is true is complete hearsay. It is totally unconfirmed. I don't know. But she would actually have really, really good probable cause. I'm er, Not probable cause, but she would have really, really good motive for this murder. Because she was set to inherit literally everything. Now, like I said, Bob Crane might have thought he was broke, but he honestly wasn't. He, had, he actually had a nice little stash of money, and that doesn't even include his life insurance policy. Now, there is absolutely no love lost between, like I said, uh, uh, Robert Crane and his ex-stepmother, Patty. So it's kind of hard to take this as a legit theory or just a, I'm pissed at you. I'm going to turn the, the camera towards you. I'm not totally sure. Can't really confirm nor deny that theory. Now, another little theory is that somehow... 
Victoria Berry was involved. Now, this theory stems from a fact that at 4 a.m. that morning, there were three movers out in a moving van waiting to move these people into an apartment that was right above and over to the left of Bob Crane's apartment. Now, you might be asking yourself, why in the hell are movers there at 4 a.m.? This is the end of June in Arizona, dude. Let me tell you something. I'm not going to be outside in the middle of the afternoon moving shit when it's 105 degrees outside, all right? Most of the road construction work and things of that nature often happen at night or extremely early in the morning because of the heat factor. So, these movers claim that while they were there, they noticed a good-looking lady you know, come up, and this was after they were almost done moving. They said they witnessed Victoria Barry going into the apartment. They said that she was only in there a couple minutes and ran out screaming. Now, the interesting fact about these three movers was, first off, the cops knew that the movers were there at some point in time before they were there. But them being movers... They had no idea who they were or where they went. And how this happened was one of the cops was on a national television show talking uh, when they were getting ready to do the trial. This was huge, huge media coverage in the early 90s because this was still unsolved. And technically, it still is unsolved to this day. Well, one of the, movie, one of the movers calls the Scottsdale Police Department and says, Hey, I was there. This is what happened. Well, he tells them, like I said, that they saw Victoria Berry walk into the apartment, walk out a few minutes later screaming, and they also say that a minute or about a minute after she walked out the door, that a man came out of the same door, and her and him sat there and smoked a cigarette, and then he got in a white car and left. Now, it is a fact that John Henry Carpenter drove a white car. His Cordova's rental car was white. Now, he had left before the cops had gotten there. But another nice little interesting fact is that Victoria Berry's boyfriend at the time, who I believe later became her husband, also drove a white Cadillac. Now, the movers specifically said that this white car was a Cadillac. That is a very interesting piece of information because a Cordova and a Cadillac, depending on what model Cadillac, they kind of look similar. Obviously, the taillights are way different. Um, the front of the cars, the side of the cars could be mistaken for, for one another, but at the same time, most of the models Cadillac back in 78 do not look like the Cordova. And when you see a Cadillac, you know a Cadillac. You know what I'm saying? There's a big difference between that and a piece of shit Cordova. So, they honestly believe that there's a theory that she was involved in that right. And then there's also the fact that a couple of witnesses uh, noticed her making a phone call at about 2 a.m. in the morning. Now, she claims that she made this phone call to talk to her boyfriend, 
Now, her boyfriend totally denies the fact that he ever got a phone call from her at 2 a.m. Now, laying beside Bob Crane's nightstand is a date book. In that date book, with a pen right there, date book open, encircled, was Victoria Berry. Could she have called Bob Crane at 2 a.m. to verify their lunch appointment, or could she have called Bob Crane at 2 a.m. to see if he was alone? Because let's not forget, there was no signs of forced entry in this apartment. Somebody knew who he was, and he was comfortable enough sleeping around this person. Maybe she came over for a late-night booty call. Uh, Some actually speculate that the murderer might have actually been a woman that was sleeping in bed with him at the time. Therefore, he did not wake up because, like I had mentioned, he was a very, very light sleeper. It was somebody he knew. He had to have been comfortable enough to fall asleep with this person around. You know, whether or not the semen was his, that right there could also play a factor and put her in there and a lot of people are like well why would she you know have him murdered well if you think about it this guy was video recording women without their knowledge there could have been an instance where she actually admitted that they had had sex a couple of times later on in the investigation now she could have found out that he was secretly videotaping uh maybe going to use his blackmail maybe you know these people would find out about them Bam, hence she would murder him. Now, this is total speculation on my behalf. I could see it happening, and another reason I could see that happening is because of the blood splatter on the wall. Now, if a shorter person with with weaker strength uses more of an arc, it's not going to hit the ceiling. It's just going to hit the back wall. So that would totally, it wouldn't totally, but it would somewhat contradict what the police had said about the uh, larger arc with the blunt object. Now, still at this point, even after he was found innocent, nothing. You know, I, that's pretty much all I got from the Victoria Berry theory right there. There's not too much information, little tidbits, but what the movers did see and what they reported as seeing is very, very strange to me. Um, they, they did report that the guy looked like, might have looked like John Henry Carpenter, but at the same time, John Henry Carpenter was a very random looking guy. And it's not out of the realm of possibilities that maybe her boyfriend or another man that she knew couldn't have looked like him. Same car, all that good stuff. Whatever. Now it should be known that John Henry Carpenter pleaded his innocence until the day he died. He actually died in 1998. Um, And there are a lot of people that know him as character witnesses that say there is no way he was capable of doing this. Um, And that includes his wife, uh, Diana. His wife actually admitted, you know, hey, yeah, he fucked around on me a lot, blah, 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 but he is not a murderer. She actually stood with him throughout the entire, entire trial and at no point in time ever believed that he was capable of murder. So we got two theories down couple more to go 
So the next theory is a jealous husband slash boyfriend. Now, with Bob Crane's pro pro little sexual proclivities, uh, he made a lot of enemies. One of which included a woman that he had videotaped having sex with, of course. And uh, when her boyfriend found out about it, he supposedly cut up a picture of Bob Crane, mutilated it, and taped it to the back door of her house. Now, this is totally unconfirmed. This is just a random thing that I read. I don't know why, you know, how somebody would find out about this or whether or not she offered the information to police as a possible suspect. But I could not confirm that through any other news source that I could find, and I looked at a lot of news sources. Um, um, let's say another one would have been uh, a girlfriend, and actually this is goes along with the same theory, this same girlfriend... Uh, the boyfriend that was mad that left this out on her back door is actually confirmed and legitimate connected to the mob out of Las Vegas. Now, from a couple of my other episodes, we know that mob hitmen will definitely kill some people. But still, there was absolutely no forced entry. But... Remember, that back patio door was unlocked. Why it was unlocked or how it got unlocked, we do not know. But it was unlocked, so it's not totally, you know, out of the, you know, out of the imagination to think that this could have happened. Now, we will say that whoever it was, was in the apartment for some amount of time, given the blood stains on the front drapes. We imagine that they were probably looking out the window to try to make sure, you know, passerbys were gone. Specifically, that the movers were gone because they were literally right out in front of this apartment. So I'm not 100% sure why somebody would be there and not just slip out the back door. Unless we go back to the Victoria Berry theory in which the car was actually parked out front by the by the moving van. Now here we get into a nice little theory of mine. It's not out of the realm of possibility to think that maybe Robert Crane Jr. had something to do with this as well. Now let's look at motive here. Motive would be he had recently, Bob had recently changed his will and left all of his kids his three original kids from his first marriage and his first wife leaving them absolutely nothing and leaving patty and uh his second son everything that would piss somebody off off enough to where you know they might be pissed he is also the one who said that the third key to that apartment was missing i'm gonna ask a question here how the hell does he know that there is no report of this anywhere else but him saying this. And it's not out of the realm of possibility as well to think that Robert Crane would purposely try to take attention away from himself by suggesting other possibilities or, 
you know, actively involving himself in the case. Now, the time factor might be a little bit of a stretch. He would have had to have been on a plane roughly about the same time as John Carpenter because he was in L.A. at the time that John Carpenter did call him because him and his dad, Bob, uh, or Robert Jr. and Bob, actually shared an L.A. apartment as well. So, there's another little theory for you to ponder over. Now, that being said, you know, there's also another short little theory about uh, Bob Crane actually having a little bit of a gambling problem and racking up a gambling debt of anywhere from one hundred and twenty-five to $250,000, and this is 1978 money. That is totally unconfirmed. I actually read that on a really obscure old discussion forum and where the guy who reported that actually heard it firsthand from somebody who had knowledge of it and or was involved in it. It's hard to take that as seriousness. Uh, I just kind of dismissed that theory, to be honest with you. There's no other reports of Bob Crane having any kind of gambling problem. Just a serious, serious sex addiction problem. And it was self-admitted, too. He knew it. Uh, Well, at the beginning of this episode, I totally told you to remember a name of Carolyn Beret. She was technically the very last person to see Bob Crane alive. Now, it might not make a big difference in your theory, depending on what you got, but it should be known that for years after Bob Crane's death, she would always state that she knew Bob Crane was dead at 10 o'clock in the morning. How she would know this, I do not know. And in the preliminary hearing for John Henry Carpenter, she actually said this. Now, when it actually got a little bit later and she was interviewed more times for hearings or whatnot, she actually stated that she got her times mixed up and it was closer to, you know, 2 o'clock or so. One of her friends supposedly called her and let her know. Now, another weird little thing about all this is that Carolyn Beret left town after she found out that he was murdered. Now, the reason that she says she did this is because she thought her life was in danger. She had a friend out of town. She She's like, why not? She's like, what's good? She was shaken up, apparently, and she said, I might as well visit my friend now. It's a good time as any. Gets the fuck out of Dodge. Now, like I said, I find that sketchy as hell, to be perfectly honest with you. And I will tell you this, too, that when the movers were seeing uh, this very attractive blonde woman, who was Victoria Berry, who actually found the body, uh, she's a blonde, good-looking woman. Well, as a matter of fact, Carolyn Berre had gone out with Bob Crane a few times and did know where this guy lived. And she also looks a little bit like Victoria Berry. Not a lot, but from the back view, they had the same blonde hair, kind of feathered out. It's It could be mistaken easily. Throw that in there with the uh, you know, other theories that I told you and everything, and throw that in the memory banks and with your theories and stuff like that. And Until next time, I will see you on the flip side.